0: Hi everyone, this is Jennifer Lescolette from M Disrupt. M Disrupt is a platform that connects digital health innovators with scientists and industry health experts that want to bring their health products to market quickly and responsibly. Our podcast today will focus on telemedicine. Now telemedicine has gotten a ton of press during the pandemic, but the big question is around is telemedicine and virtual care here to stay? And to address that today, we have Dr. Aditi Joshi the Senior Advisor and Acute Care Telehealth Executive at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital, Um, and she is in charge of the On Demand Telehealth Program and is the Assistant Professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine. Dr. Joshi is a champion of telehealth and health innovation, and she teaches and trains students and residents on how technology is fundamentally transforming how we interact and care for patients. Dr. Joshi, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Dr. Joshi, I would love to begin by hearing about your background, career journey, and how health innovation is changing the way you practice medicine.
1: So to begin, I'm an emergency medicine physician. I graduated residency in 2009 and started my career working in a very busy emergency department. And after a few years, I had symptoms of burnout and I decided I needed to try something a little bit different. It's a common thing in emergency medicine, and there's a lot written about it. So I decided I wanted to see what else was out there. I tried looking for a couple of different things and eventually found an advertisement for a doctor on demand, and I decided to apply and join them. This was in 2013 when they were very new, and eventually I joined as one of their first doctors, one of their full-time doctors, and then assistant medical director. I worked there clinically, probably saw about 10,000 patients as well as doing peer review. We created some clinical pathways there and just really tried to determine what is a quality visit when this was a very new practice. So at that time, I basically worked telemedicine. I did a couple of ER shifts here and there. And then going forward uh, in 2015, Thomas Jefferson University started a huge enterprise-wide telehealth program. At the end of that year, I met the person who is now the Senior Vice President of Health Delivery here, who was at the time running all of the telehealth. Uh, He was telling me how they had this big program, which I was interested in, and that they needed someone to be a medical director as they didn't have anyone who had telemedicine experience. So in 2016, I joined Thomas Jefferson University in the Department of Emergency Medicine, but is also a medical director of Jeff Connect, our program here. And, and my role here has been really expansive and interesting. Being an academic center, there's a lot of room to try new things. The unique p- part of being here is that because this program came from the top down, our CEO, Steve Clasco, really has a commitment to health innovation, creating home-based health care, and to improve health equity. And so all of the departments were required to try this out. So we had expanded and done a number of things here. Not only do we have a direct-to-consumer program, which is where I started as a medical director, we also started a teletriage program in our emergency department in 2017. We also do a number of telehealth education. We do electives. We have a telehealth fellowship for those after residency who want to train and get a leadership type of role in telehealth, which I currently am the director of. And then we have every department doing some version of telehealth. and so We have a lot of experience doing this type of work. Being here for me has been amazing in that we were able to try a number of things. I learned a number of things. We were able to quick iterate. We had access to researchers, educators, every type of specialty out there who is able to give feedback on what works in telemedicine and what doesn't. So it really became a great place to try things out and really understand how telehealth can be used.
0: That's amazing. I feel like you really... You almost set yourself up at Thomas Jefferson for for something like the pandemic happening. You you're you're on the forefront from an innovation standpoint regarding telehealth. So that um, the program sounds incredible. Maybe we could look at like just step back for a moment and and define for the audience the difference between telehealth and telemedicine. I see them both used interchangeably in blogs and podcasts and news articles. And I feel like there is a distinction, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what that distinction is. That's a really good question and a very common one.
1: I'm going to use a definition that we in emergency medicine put in a white paper, understanding that they are used interchangeably, but we wanted to maybe define them a little bit uh, better. And so I use telemedicine To imply the actual service between the patient and a provider, something that is direct care or a medical encounter. Now, the term telehealth we use much more broadly and it's more inclusive. So, not only the services, but also how do we prevent, maintenance, follow up, the processes, the regulation, regulatory portions of telehealth that make up the healthcare system. And so, in this way, I think it's a broader term. I think it's a better term. So I use telehealth more because as it's expanded, that broader term is actually more relevant. But yes, it's still used interchangeably. We all know what those terms are. I do think in the future, we're also going to realize that telemedicine or telehealth is just going to be part of healthcare and the tele is going to go away. We may call it virtual care and eventually it's just going to be healthcare.
0: I appreciate the distinction. It's it's really helpful. And then from a the point of, around how it got started. So we have heard a lot about telehealth during the pandemic, and it sounds like it really got started several you know years back, maybe a decade or so, maybe in the advent of smartphones. But I would love to hear your um, version of of when things started getting exciting around telehealth and when it started getting used on a more widespread. Believe it or not, telemedicine
1: has actually existed for much longer than people think, decades, really. It was used in the military. Uh, you can you know, imagine the Navy on a ship needing some version of healthcare, care uh, going back to the mainland or to other places that had other physicians there. And then, of course, NASA, aerospace medicine, used it also. And then here and there, there were other types of telehealth. You can imagine that phone calls with a pediatrician is under the umbrella of telehealth, and that has existed for a very long time. With the advent of smartphones, you're correct, it became much more of a real possibility to do healthcare from home. So in this last decade, there have been many more direct-to-consumer companies that have popped up and more telehealth programs in clinics and practices that also existed. Much of it was few and far between. I can tell you, even with my own personal experience, when I started out, you couldn't find enough physicians or patients to really engage in this modality. People didn't understand what it was for. They didn't know how to do it. They didn't trust it. They didn't know maybe what the technology did. And so everything changed overnight almost with the COVID-19 pandemic. We needed to keep people at home. We needed to decrease exposures. All the things that you realize telehealth can help with, this became really important. And so, you know, from my personal time here at Jefferson last year, I can tell you when the pandemic started, it really did help that we had a large program already set up. So all we really needed to do was expand it. I make that sound simple. It wasn't simple, but I will say that because we had the technology workflow processes, we had training and education already there. We had a number of physicians already familiar with telemedicine and how to provide it. We were able to use these resources and expand very quickly. Uh, So for example, for the acute care telemedicine, which was our first point of contact for patients Our clinics closed. Our primary practices closed. Uh, You know, we weren't doing surgeries, and so when people would call around Philadelphia, the first thing we would tell them is, "Hey, call Jeff Connect. We will figure out: Do you need a COVID test? Do you have symptoms of COVID? Do you need to come in?" And so our volume just got huge overnight. And so what we had to do is a couple of things. The first thing we did. is figure out what kind of volume we had. So the institution itself prepared for the pandemic by getting PPE, figuring out where we were going to put patients, figuring out where we were going to put different clinicians. They set outpatient testing sites up for COVID. And then the acute care telemedicine, I personally trained about 150 new clinicians uh, over 72 hours. I made a portal with all of the real time information of COVID screening protocols uh, and then we would have to change them daily based on what we would learn. And then we would do quality assurance every day. I would sit there and just make sure that people who had questions or if it became overwhelming, try to find backup volume, try to make sure that they understood what was happening, that they were sending the right information to patients. And so we were able to do that in 72 hours and then really improve how fast we could do that because we had that set up. Uh, that was a real advantage for us in Philly. We were able to, I think in the first just six weeks, keep 6,500 people at home. It was an incredible wow. feat. That is yes, incredible. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, and it was a huge team effort. We really tried hard to make sure that we kept Philly safe. And it was successful in that way. And there's a lot of people here who really put that together. And so we really were able to do I really think we were able to really help Philly in that manner. And of course everything moves forward, but at least in that beginning month, I, I can't I I don't know how many hours I slept, but I felt that we were at least able to really help.
0: That is amazing. Those numbers are really astonishing to think back a, a year ago, really, you know, what what you and your your colleagues and and other medical professionals around around the country, around the world, were doing to keep people safe and, and and still getting them what they needed in terms of healthcare. That is incredible. I feel like a common misconception in telemedicine is that it's generally used in primary care. I have three children, and and <laughs> it's it's really easy to think, oh, uh, instead of traveling forty minutes to our doctor, we can just call them up and and get, you know, pink eye looked at or an ear infection after swimming or a rash or something like that. It's just super easy. It, it, we don't have to drive. We can get it done here in the house, get the prescription at our neighborhood pharmacy. But in reading about it and and talking to you, it just seems like there's so much more that can be used um, under this umbrella of telehealth. And um, it would be great to hear your your ideas and on, and and what you've done, like actually done um, within telehealth to, to help patients. This is That's a great important.
1: question, uh, Jennifer, because I think when we were just talking about the pandemic, the way that it was used, we think it's very narrow definition, but telehealth technically is uh, much more broad than that. So I, when I give this lecture to residents or students, I tell them, you know, you can define telehealth by two different ways by its user or by its function. So we can consider uh, the two parties that are on either side. So it can be provider to patient. So you know what we consider direct to consumer, a patient is initiating a call and uh, speaking to their physician. This can be for acute care. It can be for scheduled chronic care, but really just having a patient and provider there on each side. Another type is provider to provider consults. Now this is really between two clinicians. And this can be used for consults. So, you know, telestroke is a great long-running program where hospitals that may not have a stroke neurologist on site can connect to a stroke neurologist. So, for example, at uh, Jefferson, we have a huge neurosurgery stroke program as well as neurology. And so we will consult with them. They will see that neurologist or neurosurgeon on video. The provider on the other side will help with the exam and determine what is going to be the next step. So consider the fact that sometimes, you know, the patient will need transfer to a higher level of care and we know where to send them, what to do. But sometimes with that visit, that patient can actually stay in their home hospital and that doctor can be given a plan of care. This really helps a lot of people in the way that they can get care in their hometown. Uh, It keeps doctors in that area, right? If you're losing all of the business in that area, it's hard to keep your doctors, but this is a way to keep them there. So that's another way we use it. And then the other way we define it is really on how we're doing it. So we can do a video consult. And I think that's what people most think of when they think of the pandemic type of healthcare that they've been receiving. But telehealth is also telephone calls. You were talking about uh, pediatrics. And I had mentioned earlier that pediatrics uh, doing telephone calls with pediatricians and parents at home has existed for a long time, and that is technically telehealth, telephone and telehealth visits also. And then there's chat botch and what we call store and forward. So triage chats, uh, so they would be considered what we call asynchronous, where you may put in uh, questions and then somebody may answer in a defined unit of time. And that actually is something that we sometimes forget about as being used in telehealth. But I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the future or triage, or just type of care where people need to know, hey, do I need to come in right now? I may not need to be seen on video, but I have these symptoms. Can I get treated? Can I get a med refill? It's not acute, but can I see them? And, you know, when we're talking about the triaging, that can be, like I just said, on the store and forward, but we also use it in acute care so we do that with our teletriage program I had mentioned in the emergency department where somebody sees a ER patient right away over video, and they can take a look at them, decide where they may need to go in the ER, put in orders. So by the time they get back in the emergency department, even if there's a long wait, their workup might be done. And so I notice even when I do ER shifts, sometimes I'll see patients, they may have been in the waiting room. I understand that's frustrating. Our ERs are overburdened as everybody realizes. But sometimes all their workup is done, and so I can take a look at them, I have their lab works, I may have their x-rays and CAT scans done, and we can just make a plan right then and there. And so we use this in a lot of different ways. Telehealth is really just using technology to deliver care, and there's so many different ways that we can do it.
0: What do you think are some of the challenges and solutions of, of of adoption? in in telehealth. And here I'm thinking about, I mean, definitely from from a patient standpoint, but then also payers and and access to the technology, privacy issues, and and so on and so forth. So I'd I'd love to kind of just talk about some of those things around the the adoption of it. Absolutely. So some, you know, payers and
1: reimbursement tends to be the biggest reason that clinics and hospitals had shied away from it. There was no real way to get reimbursement. And so it just seemed an added amount of work um, without being able to really, you know, really charge for it. So, as we all know, with the Emergency Cares Act, telehealth got reimbursed to a much broader degree. I do think they are going to hold on to some of it. Now that this has become much more expansive and people understand it, I don't think we're going to go backward in that manner. Now, what we're really going to figure out is how, how do we reimbursement and how do we reimburse it, and what is it that is going to matter for that? Is it who does it? Is it where it happens? So these are some of the questions that people are unsure of. But I do think that that reimbursement question has really uh, been answered to some degree because of that, and we have more of an idea how we're going to use it. Of course, you know this cost of that. It you know what is it cost of the patient. In general, telehealth visits are cost less for both patients and payers to use it. Of course, the caveat is sometimes we do need to send patients into a higher level of care because not everything can be done on telehealth. And sometimes that can be frustrating. I understand that. But, you know, we have to make sure that we're doing the best patient quality care that we are. As far as the equity question, this is a very big one and something that certainly has been something that I struggled with as well, because you know, when I, when I first started out, I mentioned how there wasn't much engagement by either clinicians or patients. And so most of the direct-to-consumer companies, it wasn't reimbursed. And so patients would pay out of pocket for these type of visits. And of course, that is a limiting factor for many people. As more payers have adopted telemedicine, whether it's contracts with uh, companies that uh, supply uh, direct-to-consumer telemedicine uh, or a hospital system that's going to change. There is going to be a better way to reimburse it for the patient as well. And I just want to briefly mention cost can also be prohibitive for small practices or hospitals that don't have the ability to implement a program and buy the technology or the software and hardware necessary. So that of course is part of the costs too, but as it becomes more expansive and there's a real Knowledge now of how we need telehealth for our future healthcare, I think that also is going to be uh, changing. And if we do go to a value-based care, that will also help as well. The access portion, also, we have to think about internet connectivity as well as people having access to smart devices. This has been a real problem. So even when we were here in the pandemic, there was a number of people in Philadelphia who could not access us on our JeffConnect platform due to this. And so what we had to do, because again, it was an emergency situation, was a couple of my colleagues start, got a grant to start doing uh, targeted outpatient testing, and they got a van and they would just go to certain areas and do that. Of course, the barrier still there is how do people find out about it if they don't have internet connection or technology, but it was something we tried. But we can do a lot better than that. I think in the future, the connectivity question, you know, the FCC has been really committed to this question. There's a second round of grants that just opened yesterday for this entire population of how do we access and expand internet connectivity? How do we expand devices? So that is going to be a huge amount of money that's going toward that. There's a $250 million grant. That's a lot of money. This is probably the first time the government has really put that much money into this type of health innovation. So it's very exciting, but again, it's dependent on who's going to apply for it. The money is there. So anyone and anyone, everyone who has an idea of how to do this should absolutely apply for it. The problem being, of course, is that certain geographies have a harder time. Rural areas have a harder time. But, you know, in the future, we're going to have to figure out how do we access those. What has happened during the pandemic is a lot of rural telehealth. They would find places that were able to set up kiosks or people could come for devices like libraries, you know, community centers. So people have been really talking about this question this is something that we really need to think about because the disparity has been expanding, uh, and this is something that we absolutely don't want to see.
0: Mm-hmm. So, in terms of that, so we live in rural Maryland, and definitely saw the con- connectivity question come up, even with with schools, um, with children not being able to connect into their their homeroom and for education purposes. And so, totally, totally saw as a as a you know citizen or, you know, in, in the community libraries and mobile clinics, we have a lot of those as well um, in the area. But then when I think about the number of smartphone users, I think like something like 81% of Americans own a smartphone. And then it's even higher for younger Americans, um, you know, in their, in their teens, and their 20s. And when you think about that, and you think about access, is it so, so how do you bridge those two? So you have a number, a lot of people having, you know, a, a huge number of Americans have smartphones or cell phones. Can they use that for telehealth or does it require connectivity through a computer? Can you go into that a little bit more? Yes,
1: absolutely. You can absolutely use your smartphone. Most of the apps have a version that you can connect to your smartphone. Absolutely. You can also connect to your Electronic health record through there, so smartphones and the fact that most people have them is exactly why uh, that works. But there's still that population that don't have one, right? Um, so that's really the population I was referring to. It does still require a connection. So if you don't you don't have Wi-Fi, that ends up being it. Or you're in an area where Wi-Fi connectivity is not that great, like we we're talking about in certain rural areas. That ends up being more of the problem. Of course, you can get um, Data, etc., but you still need a way to connect, and this may be how and why some of these community places can do that. Because even if you have your smartphone, they may have a Wi Fi, uh, Wi Fi kind of connection for you that you can use. So this ends up being also how we can get over this.
0: Mm-hmm. And also from a trust and privacy standpoint and HIPAA compliance, are there are there issues? or have we solved most of those issues around telehealth? Um, or, or maybe it's more on the patient side. Are they worried about privacy issues in terms of their their health and, and maybe sending a, a picture of, of their a rash on their leg or something like that? Is there, is there a concern there from the patient and maybe provider standpoint?
1: Right. I, initially, I think there is. There might be still out there, but everyone should know that all telehealth platforms that Uh, clinicians are using have to be HIPAA compliant. So that's one thing. As far as, uh, you know, thinking through the pictures and doing things on video, generally we don't record videos. And we have to remember that this is a medical encounter. So you have to set it up in there. So this is also when we train clinicians, when I train them, is you have to make sure that you make it very clear to the patient that you are in a professional environment and treat Mm -hmm. them as such as you would a patient in person. I will tell you, even just anecdotally, people are not that afraid. They will send me pictures. They're happy to throw <laughs> me rashes because you're able to create that yeah. you know patient-physician uh, interaction in that way. So yes, yeah, as long as you're able to do that and create that trust with your patients, I believe that this is not as much of a problem as people think. People use, we use our smartphones for everything. I mean, the pandemic made us use it for schools, but we've been FaceTiming family and friends and using this all over the place anyway. So people right. are used to that.
0: Yeah, and they're pretty, pretty easy going about posting pictures about everything. Yeah, you know,
1: do. and-, and <laughs> <laughs> obviously, we don't do it if they're not comfortable, but most people mm-hmm. say, hey, this is a picture of my rash, and, and that's great, too. It's an, it's a medical record. It goes in the medical record, and that obviously has a lot of security measures around it.
0: Super. So I'd like to uh, maybe go into a, our a next chapter in this conversation and discuss, have a discussion around digital health innovators. And many in the M Disrupt audience have access to capital and different technology and engineers to build solutions. And I'd like to get your thoughts on how how our digital health innovators can do this better and what we're not doing enough of.
1: Thanks, Jennifer. It has been a beautiful thing to see how many people are committed to trying to improve healthcare with all of the digital health solutions that are out there. And so, you know, I see a lot of great people working on it, people really passionate about it, and that is really wonderful. I will say some of the things to think through when you are creating a innovation within healthcare... Healthcare, as we all know, is very complicated. Uh, but what you really have to understand is the healthcare system and how it works. The biggest, you know, the biggest complaint that most physicians have or clinicians have is people not understanding the workflows in a hospital and how things actually work, and then trying to create a solution that may actually make it harder for us to get our jobs done. There's also there's already a huge burden. And a lot of work within healthcare. physicians are overburdened, they're getting burnt out. We all know those things. So adding something that isn't useful or efficient or they can't be reimbursed for ends up being a problem. And so ways to get around this is really understanding what your solution is, ensuring that what you're creating is really a problem in the first place. I will say speaking to clinicians is a really good idea with the caveat that we don't always know the right solution. So that's why it's really great to get people who are outside of medicine to give ideas, but it's important to have somebody who understands how we practice so that when there comes up questions of how people would respond or use it or how people actually work, there is a way to use uh, to understand that. And so getting that input early is important and having really the right advisors I understand it's sometimes tough to find any. I also understand that it's sometimes tough to figure out who those people are. But I can tell you, I've had a couple of pitches sometimes where people created a solution and they'd gone pretty far down the path. And I would tell them and look at them and I would just realize that what they had been creating was a bit out of date with the research within that specialty. And it is heartbreaking to have to tell somebody that because that is, People really put their passion into it. And so really understanding where the specialty is or where they are at that particular moment is really key to understanding and creating a solution that people want. You have to make people want it and understand how they can use it effectively.
0: Great. And, and traditionally, health products have come to market using key opinion leader programs and sales teams. And you mentioned a few minutes ago about speaking to physicians and really understanding their workflows and why it's important to them and what you need to do to get them on board. And I want to understand where there's room for improvement on how this is done. So traditionally, we've gone from a key opinion leader program and and having a sales team looking at health health products and how to get those to market. But, but really, what you had just said is you have to speak to the people that are using it. And I'd like to understand from you um, maybe why that methodology is is a better approach? That's a great
1: question. And like all health solutions, you have to understand what the end user wants. And so I was speaking of an example of physicians, but it's not always physicians. So once you're very clear on what you're trying to solve, speaking to physicians, of course, is key, but you also need to speak to maybe nurses, advanced practice providers. It depends on who is delivering the care. It may be people who work in social work, crisis recovery if you're working in opiate use disorder and then also patients understanding patients who have maybe this disease who have or have a child that does understanding who those end users are is really important to understand what their daily life is like so that you can create that the key opinion leaders this is an interesting question i always think of this in the in the way that even medicine functions So if you consider emergency medicine as an example, and I'm using it since I'm an emergency medicine physician, academic medicine is really where we do the bulk of the research. It's really where we set the standard for education and training because that's where the medical schools are tied into. So they set the standard for what the care is. But really, the bulk of emergency medicine is really in the community, rural areas, in other places. So when we have to set these standards, we have to always remember those community places as well. And so when I think of key opinion leaders versus the broadband, broad-based group that I just gave you, I think of it in those terms. So the key opinion leaders, maybe they have the ideas of how to set the standard, maybe, but you have to get that uh, input from those who are actually using it on the day-to-day basis.
0: And what do you think needs to be done, and you've, you've gone over this a little bit, but to adopt our, our, our pilot some of these innovations? And and in terms of that, I mean, in terms of, like, evidence, what kind of evidence, um, like, real-world evidence is needed, um, maybe other things around, you know, is there an appropriate value proposition, the health economics behind it? Is there Are there things that need to be in place um, or, or for, for digital health companies to evaluate that will make physicians um, and med- you know, med- medical providers feel comfortable about using these options? This
1: is a very standard answer I give because I think this doesn't always play out. You really have to understand the research. You you know, especially for talking about the types of groups that are going to do the pilots, a lot of them end up in academic centers or affiliated with academic centers. The research has to pan out in what you're creating. It really just does. And it seems like a simple answer, but I you know, there are so many things out there that just don't. And so, you know, and doctors will be like, this does not work. This is not what the research says. This is not actually going to help patients. And yet and yet, I see a lot of solutions that are still doing this. I'm not going to pick on anything, but I do see that. So there has to be a real, especially if you're creating genomics or devices or something like that, it has to really correlate to that type of research. And I think this is where there is a huge gap some of that research has to be done, right? Sometimes you're bringing something new to, the, to new that has to be tested out. That is okay, but it has to be based in a real medical issue that has some backing or somebody who has an idea of how to actually treat it. I hope that answers the question. I can definitely go yeah. into more details, but that is really something I see a lot of that is a bit frustrating because when I see a company that doesn't have that done, they're Really would have been an easy solution to that.
0: And I want to understand. I want to know what your secret to success is, your secret sauce, because you've done so much and you've helped. Um, just taking Je- Jefferson Connect as an example, you've really brought to light you know, telehealth um, in your leadership and. You know, in addition to that, it was a, I really I'd like to understand kind of your advice on what you would tell a founder who is interested in telehealth solutions and improving patient care. What would you tell them today to help them innovate and and really find the passion?
1: So some of what I've already said, really understand what you're trying to solve, getting the right team around you, getting the right advisors, and just asking people around uh, that deal with this what to do. For my personal career, what I would pr- probably t- what I tell people is, you know, when I started out, this is not where I thought my career would go. I love emergency medicine. I did not expect to get burnt out. And really just under, like, sometimes all what you have to do is just let's look around and then just say yes. When I started out, I just, when I started out in telehealth, I really found that I enjoyed it. Uh, I had a lot of friends that worked in tech and I, in, understood a lot of how they worked. And I just kept saying yes to things. So I joined that. I said yes to assistant medical director at Dr. On Demand. I said yes to Jefferson. And here at Jefferson, every time there was a new program where people came to us and say, hey, we want to try this type of telehealth solution, or we want to try this program, or Steve Klasko would come and say, hey, we need you to create this overnight. We would just say yes. Our department would say yes. And then we would do it it didn't always work. We have a lot of programs we never uh, brought to fruition. We had never actually used. But every time we even just created the thought and went through the thought process, went through the workflow, went through the process itself, it became easier and easier and easier at every time to figure out how to do that. So now if you were to ask me, hey, Aditi, can you set up a process to do this type of program? I'll be like, absolutely. And I can do that because I've had practice doing that a lot. And what I also tell uh, everybody is try to find the right people around you, uh, people who work work similar to you. And what I mean by that, have the same goals in mind. So when I said that we had a department here that just said yes and would try things out, that is how I work also. And that works for me and when y- you want to work with groups like that so this is usually uh, this is usually advice i give to residents or medical students but i think this also works for anybody who is starting a company or has an innovation or has something that they want to start if you're going to come to somebody such as uh you need someone for adv- as an advisor role or you need like a clinical input if you come and ask and have a very specific ask and say hey can you help me with this in a specific manner the answer for me, I will always say yes. So, if a student comes to say, "Can I do research with you on this?" Yes. However, coming with a very non-specific ask and saying, "Hey, I want to do telehealth. What do I do?" That is very difficult for me to answer, mainly because that isn't specific enough. And uh, getting requests that at, like that is a whole lot harder to direct. So, it's easier if you understand where what you want and where you want to go, and then figure out how to create that team around you
0: great. And so as we wind wind down, there's one final question that I wanted to ask you and it's it's really about looking into the future. And so when I think about traditional health systems and and, and pharmacies and, and all the components of that, and then you think about digital health companies like Hims and Hers and Everlywell, you know there's there's a, there are a lot of different players here. And and then finally, of course, in the center of that you have the patients and you want You want to connect to patients where they live, and so I'd really like to hear about, you know, what do you think the interaction of the health system will look like in ten years when you when you take all of those things into consideration, where the patient lives. Direct to consumer companies that are that are playing a role, the health systems, mm-hmm. all, all of those things within the continuum continuum of healthcare.
1: I love this question because this is my favorite thing to work on. You know, so as a background, I'm the chair of the of chair of chair of telehealth for the American College of Emergency Physicians, and this year we have a task force looking into how are we going to define emergency medicine for the next five to 10 years because of telehealth. And so this is something that is a really fun question to ask, but it's also brass tacks, right? Like what do we need to do for what we want the system to look for? And so I'll say a couple of things that I have thought through quite a bit for this. So one, I think there's going to be a lot of home-based health care. And what I mean by that, it's not going to be, you know, it could be chronic care. It could be set up care. It could be acute care. And there's going to be adjunct ways for us to deliver that care, not just from devices and smartphones, but we'll probably have better home care. We'll be able to use EMS to go for acute care. And because of that, we might be able to deliver a lot of the things that we do in the emergency department at people's homes. Then second of all, whether in the uh, hospital itself, we're going to be able to do a lot more cross consults because of this. And so people are going to be able to access consultants from all over because somebody might be a specialist in one thing. And because of that, they'll be able to get information and uh, specialist care from other places. So that will be exciting. Um, And then, you know, like just after that, we'll be able to observe patients at home. We'll be able to take care of them better at home. And for patients themselves, the fact that they can do this, they're going to have much more control over their health system I think there's going to be better health literacy once we figure out how to make it palatable, uh, the complicated terms we sometimes use in medicine, so that they can have more control over what they're doing and what they understand for their healthcare and work more in, as a team-based approach as opposed to this, you come to me in my clinic or emergency department or my surgical suite, we're going to have a lot more broad-based ability to take that because of that you know there's going to be a lot more research in how do we determine how virtual care works how do we make sure it's safe how do we make sure that we can do that type of care our education is going to change significantly you know not only in medical school and for residency for people who are going to have to provide this care but i think as we you know change the way that we use smartphones i think it's going to show even patients and anybody who works in that space how do we make this solution for our healthcare, not just our banking, not just for social media. How is this going to be part of healthcare? How do we make devices? How do we make smartphones better? How do we make all those things part of those things that we use every day so that they're part of your healthcare as well?
0: Well, Dr. Joshi, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure speaking with you today about um, telehealth and virtual care. I loved hearing your insights and getting educated on on really what telehealth can do in the future, today and in the future. Thank you, Jennifer. It's
1: been such a pleasure to talk about this as well. I love MD Disrupt, so glad to be here.
0: Great. If you are a digital health innovator who needs access to leading health industry experts to build, commercialize, and scale your health product, please contact MD Disrupt.